Well, good morning. Welcome to Stable to Fellowship Church. My name is Jimmy Smith. I was standing in the back just a minute ago, and we were listening to the announcements, and Randy says to me, I can't believe he said this was just completely inappropriate. Uh, he said, you guys are taking dessert to the police academy, aren't you doing donuts? I said, Randy, I didn't say it. That's something someone else said, and I completely disapprove of that. Completely inappropriate. No, we're excited about going and helping over at the police academy. It's a really cool opportunity, and uh, glad we get to be a part of that, and hopefully some of you guys can join in and help out with that as well. Hey, we're in the middle of a series, Who We Are, and today we're talking about being the church. One of our signature themes, uh, being the church. What does that mean? And today's message is really kind of an overview. I like to usually get into a passage and stay there for a while. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover today to give kind of an overview. We can take any one of these points and spend a week or so on them uh, easily. Uh, but today we're going hit to some, hit some high points. Um, and just to start out about the church, you know, words have meaning. Words have meanings. You know, a few years ago, there was a, a name controversy uh, with a baseball team out in California, the Anaheim Angels. And after some time, they landed on, finally, uh, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim instead of just the Anaheim Angels. So there was, I guess they wanted notoriety in the name, things like that. But words have meaning. And if you're a Spanish speaker and you're literally translating these words, the name of the team is the, the Angels Angels of Chili's. If you, if you, if you, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim is actually the, the Angels Angels of Chili's, Anaheim being a chili pepper, because words have meaning. And so if you're looking at that and you're translating it literally, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, we have the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. I prefer Colorado Rockies anyway. But uh, So in the New Testament, the word for church that's translated, uh, the, word, the Greek word that it comes from is ekklesia. And the literal translation of ekklesia is not the word church. And you might think, oh my goodness, what have we been doing for the last hundred centuries here? But the word that they used, they kind of gave it an identifying term using the word church. And we understand what, what church means, um, but the, the Greek word ekklesia is used 115 times, and we understand the mo- most common use of the term as it relates to Christianity today is that it's, it's one, it's the place or the building where Christians come to gather for worship, and two, it's the body of people who identify as Christians. But the literal interpretation of the word ekklesia means a called-out assembly, a called-out assembly. And think of that moment when you're home and you check the mail, and in your mailbox is a summons for jury duty. Yeah, I heard the ooze already. It's like, just, just that moment, your just heart kind of sinks. And it's like, oh, I want to be a good citizen to do my civic duty, but I know what this entails. It's that great feeling, right? And so the word ecclesia carries that idea of a summons. The verbal form of it carries the idea of a summons. And when the authorities, the king, whoever in an area wanted to bring people into his court for a certain reason, he would summons them. And that word, it's part of that word, ecclesia. You, the church, the ecclesia, have been officially summoned to leave your perfectly fine routine in existence to gather for a specific purpose. And if you're called to jury duty, you're called out of your perfectly fine existence, right? to go sit on a jury for weeks at a time. And the church is called 
out of the world. So in a literal and biblical view of the church, the word ecclesia, we believe that the best interpretation is that people are called out of the world and into a local and universal assembly of believers with a very specific purpose. We have been summoned by our authority, Jesus, to leave this world, leave the things of this world, and gather and unite to assemble to fulfill a very specific purpose. And the New Testament is a collection of books and letters, many of which have the explicit purpose of telling the church and showing the church the assembly of called-out believers, how to function and follow Jesus. We're not going to cover the entire New Testament today. It might feel like that, but we're not going to cover the entire New Testament today. But I want to highlight some very important reminders about who the church is and what the church is called to do. Many of these letters that Paul wrote, they weren't just, hey, you're doing a great job kind of letters. A lot of them were very corrective, very instructive on how to live this life that's called out from the world. We're going to delve into that today. So being the church, number one, well, we're going to cover three things. We are called out, we are called together, we are called to. So first one, called out. Called out. Jumping off, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. should be on the screen for you as well. But since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. There is a huge, strong calling in the words of the New Testament to come out from the world. And I don't think it's by any accident that Jesus used the word ecclesia to describe his church. To call them out of this world. To be different. Examples in this passage of worldly conduct. They're pretty easy to pick out. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malicious behavior, lying, slander, foul language. We live in a day where it feels like Christians and the church are trying to do everything they can to not distance themselves from the world. And I can't read Scripture and validate the beliefs and actions of many Christians and churches today when it comes to what it means to be separate from the world. 
But we live in a day and age where we try to contextualize everything about it and try to make it fit so that we don't offend people or that we don't alienate someone. But I'm telling you, Scripture is clear that the church is to be different. The church is to leave behind the things of the past. We are dead to those things. We have a new life in Christ. And there's a litany of things here that that this particular passage in general talks about. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Look, the church and believers should look different in their opinions on what sexual immorality is. There should be convictions about following God's word and God's plans. God has a purpose and a plan for that in our lives. Since creation, he has showed us what he wants us to do with sexual desires in our life. And the church, this church, will be different in how we view those things in regards to how the world views those things. Why? Because God has called us out of the world and into his righteousness. And we will look different. We will act different. We ought to look different. We ought to act different. This litany of things that he talks about here, you agree. Does God love people less that struggle with these things? Absolutely not. That's why Paul is writing this letter and saying, look, church, God loves you. He gave his life for you. You're dead to the world. You need to be living like this. Because over here with what God has commanded is what makes him happy. It's what he desires from us. God wants the absolute best abundant life for us. And he knows it doesn't exist over here in the world. He knows it exists over here separate from the world. And there are going to be many many times and on many issues that the church will look, feel, and be different because we are called out of the world. Greed. Greed is modern-day idolatry. You might not have a carved image sitting above your mantle, but you have a very large TV. Best thing I can think of. You might have idolatry in your life Because the almighty dollar is what controls your every move. Christian business owners. You have a wonderful position in life. To be able to use your gifts and talents in in the business world and to bless other people. But if greed is overtaking your life, you're not operating your business the way that God wants you to operate your business. Can I just get nosy for a minute? Tax season is right around the corner. Boo. Listen. Render unto Caesar. What? If you're lying on your taxes because you don't want to pay what you're supposed to, it's not only fraud in the eyes of the government, it's greed. And Christians ought not to be like that. Christians are to be called out of this world, to be different. Anger and rage ought not to be ought not to be the the, the the compass of a Christian, right? Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. We repent of it and move forward. 
malicious behavior, intending to do harm to people, lying and slander, foul language. I mean, the list goes on. And I'm not here today to just beat up on folks. But listen, there is a call to be different. There is a call to look different, to act different, to think differently, to do different things. That's what the church, that's one of the focuses of the church. There are examples of godly conduct in this, in this passage, that our thoughts are on the things of heaven. And I thought about that for a little while. It's just, you know, are you too earthly-minded to be any heavenly good? <laughs> or too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good? You know, if, you, if it's only in your thoughts, I think the reason he talks about thoughts here is because actions begin with thoughts. If your mind isn't centered on the things of God, if it isn't centered on our purpose and, and where we're moving, what God has called us to, you won't have the actions that then follow that. That's why this is important. That's why gathering together, assembling together to hear God's word is important because we could put our minds on the things of God so that when we leave here, our actions reflect that. A new, a changed nature. One of the fascinating things about salvation is that the old things are passed away and all things are become new. A Christ-likeness. There's an absence of the list that precedes all of this. There's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all those things. Because, as it says in verse 11, Christ is all that matters. Christ is all that matters. One who is called out, one who is separated from the world, should understand that Christ lives in you, so therefore your actions must change. Christ lives in your action must change. Christ and his kingdom is all that matters. My purpose must change. My focus on this life must change. Are you separated from the world? Is there distinction in your life? Does anyone even know that you're a Christian? Would someone be shocked to find that out? Would they believe you if you told them? Have my actions changed to reflect Christ's likeness in my life? What purpose am I striving for? Is it my kingdom or God's kingdom? Because the church is called out with a specific purpose. Jesus says that his church, his ecclesia, is called out from the world and to be a true part of the church of Jesus The church that Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You must answer the summons and leave where you are and take on Christ. Because Christ is all that matters. So we are called out of the world. That's number one. There might be some challenging things for you and there's some things you need to wrestle with with God. There might be some things in there that come into your mind. Maybe it's a new thought for you. Yeah, I really am supposed to be different. I am supposed to be called out. Maybe that's something to think about. Two, we're called together. And this is where all the fun stuff comes in. So we're called together. And expressions of the called out assembly are all through the New Testament. And so I want to hit some some common ones that that we focus on, that we talk about often. But number one expression of the local assembly is that we are worshipers. We are worshipers. If you look with me in Colossians chapter 3, 
verses 16 and 17. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Worshippers, by definition, express honor and adoration. And I believe that worship is truly expressed not just on a Sunday morning, but as a lifestyle. Yes, we come together for weekly worship. But those attitudes of worship, the things that we're expressing here, should really permeate our lives when we're not here. Some things that this passage talks about, that God's word fills our life. Sundays do a great job of that. It gives you time to focus, set aside everything else, think about God's word. There's value for teaching and counsel and wisdom. We do a lot of that through community groups where there's extra time spent together in God's world to God's word to build those relationships. Singing. We do a lot of singing. The church for centuries has done a lot of singing. I don't know why God has it this way, but there's a, there's a great emotional response from people through song, through worship that way. Thankfulness, that we come here and we give him our thanks. We give him the honor that is due. Then, and then our words and our actions are worshipful. If one truly wants to express honor and adoration, this is what it looks like. And it says there, God loves our worship. It makes him happy. He wants that from his children. He wants us to be thinking and spending time with him and building that relationship and learning more about who he is. He loves our worship. Many, many years ago, I was in China doing some missions work with the church I was a part of in California. And we were working among the Hmong people group, which are like refugees out of Laos, and, but there's a large Hmong population in southern China. And so the missionary we were working with was Hmong, and we, so we had a lot of these contacts with Hmong people. And there's... The, the churches are very few and far between. I mean, you'll travel miles and miles and miles and miles uh, before you ever find uh, churches in some of these areas. And so we had traveled a great, great distance to visit a Hmong church, and they were ready for us. When you walk into the village, I mean, they're singing and clapping, and it's just really fun, and, and they're just excited to see people. And they had a church service, and they really, really value singing. And we had heard this, that, that they really valued singing. We heard they were good singers. I mean, you've got you to picture where I'm at. I mean, it's literally middle of nowhere, rice paddies all around. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing. I'm not even sure the village had electricity. I mean, it's just very, very, very remote. And the little church building we come into, and, and they had told us now they might want you to sing a song. And it's like me and like ten others of these older pastors, and it wasn't the choir. These guys could probably teach the word of God very well, but singing just wasn't their thing. And so we're in the, we're in the van on the way there trying to work up something that we're going to sing, some little hymn, some little ditty uh, that we could share if, if we were asked. And sure enough, we got in there and we were asked to sing, and so we get up and put on our best face and sing our little song and, and worship God that way. And, and then they got the chance to sing. And it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. This little church all of a sudden was filled with a choir, probably expanded this stage, and uh, just little Hmong people, and they sang the Hallelujah Chorus. And it wasn't like what you'd think. It was absolutely beautiful. It was very well done. It was professional. I mean, I've been in choir. I've done a lot of music. and I know what stuff's supposed to sound like, and it sounded like it's supposed to sound like. 
And it sounded really good after our song. (laughs) But wherever you go in the world, you find Christians who gather for worship. And it expresses itself in many, many different ways. I grew up in a church that's piano and organ, right? Those people love Jesus just as much as you do. They just like to sing differently. And there's many expressions of how worship comes out in the church and in our lives. But the point is that the call-out believers should be worshipers. We should be giving that honor to God. Two, disciples make up the called-out assembly. A disciple is a follower and a learner. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Great passage. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's literally God-breathed. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. What? There's wrong? Yeah. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. A disciple wants to know God's word. The Bible in this passage explicitly tells us that it is the standard for truth. It tells us what is true. It also is the standard for ethics. What is right and wrong? There are many things we find in this world that might be true, but might vary on the right or wrong scale. It might be true that, it, that you have the free speech to insult and, and condemn someone and say whatever you want about them. You may have that free speech legally to do that. That might be true, but that doesn't make it right. The Bible gives us both, teaches us what is truth and teaches us what is right and wrong. It's a standard for correction. I love that, that, that God just doesn't tell us no. He tells us no, but don't do that. Do this. Gives us the corrective measures. And, and a lot of the New Testament is very corrective. Preparation for good works. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And a disciple wants to know wants to have that understanding in his life and wants to grow in God's word. Jesus wants followers and not fans. The fan hits the like button, and that's about it. The follower wants to know who Jesus is, wants to know his word, wants to know what is truth, wants to know what is right and wrong. We have great modes for that here, for you to get into God's word. Another thing that makes up the called-out assembly is servants. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. I use this passage all the time, especially when it comes to our mission trips. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over you. Remember, of this world. Lord it over their people. And the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. In the church, leadership looks like servanthood. And among the body of Christ, there should be people that have the willingness to serve. One of my favorite things about Staple of Fellowship is that there are people that love to serve and love to give of their time. And that's the one thing I love. Time is the one thing you give that you can't get back. You can give somebody money and go earn some more money. You give somebody your time, it's gone. 
And so we have people here who want to serve. And Jesus says that the leaders among his followers look much different from the world, that they should look like servants. And Jesus is the example. His ministry on earth was to serve others to the point of death. I'm not asking you to die for us today. But I'm saying your life should have the element of a called out believer in that you serve the kingdom in some way. That you give of your time, your talent, your treasure to help other people find Christ. I'm telling you, you want to experience the abundant Christian life, you should be serving others. I take people on mission trips all the time. One of the things I always hear is, you know what, we went to serve and I understood that I got blessed more than anybody else on that trip. I was, God gave me more than I gave to anybody else. And that happens through serving. That happens through serving. You know, a lot of times I get the comment, of, you know, well, we're, you know, we come to Sundays, but we just, just don't feel like I'm getting fed. Are you in a community group and are you serving anywhere? Well, of course you're not getting fed because you're missing it. You're doing one-third. If you feel like there's something missing, you might not be serving where you're supposed to be serving. God has given each of us gifts to invest into his kingdom. There are people that are way, way better at web design in this world than I am. And recently I found one that wants to help out and use that. Help us make that better and, and you know, take it off my plate. You've got gifts and skills that I don't have and that the rest of our team doesn't have. And things that you can use to invest in the kingdom. That's why God gave it to you. That's why God gave you that gift. That's why God gave you that education, gave you that experience so that you could invest it in his kingdom. The called-out assembly is full of servants. The called-out assembly is full of funders. Uh-oh. Listen, the Bible talks about money a lot. Look at me, look with me at 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly in response to pressure, for God loves a person who is cheerful. Generosity and cheerfulness are consistent themes about giving. And this particular passage is about a special offering that Paul was taking to bless the church in Jerusalem. So he's encouraging them here, look, we're trying to raise money to fund the effort in Jerusalem, to help get the church moving in Jerusalem, something going on there. And I want you to think about how you're going to sow in this. You sow little, you're going to reap little. You sow a lot, you're going to be generous reaping. But there's generosity and cheerfulness that are, that are given here. Three quick points on this. The expansion of God's kingdom requires funding. It just does. I wish, and someday that's going to be my brilliant idea, right? Is figure out how to fund missionaries, mission projects in ways that are just, you know, that help take off the hindrances, that help remove the barriers. Because to get the gospel into places, it takes resources. It just does. It takes resources for our own church to operate and be here. I didn't make it that way. It's just the reality of life that resources help move the church forward. Am I worried about that? No. God's got the cattle on a thousand hills, and he's got the hills. He knows his church. He knows his children. He's going to take care of us. Second thing, giving is compared to sowing and reaping. Sow little, reap little. Sow generously, reap generously. I am not 
the health and wealth prosperity guy. I'm not. And when he says you're going to sow generously, you're going to reap generously, that doesn't mean if you sow 10 bucks, you're going to find $20 in your mail next week. It doesn't work like that. The apostles, Jesus, all gave. And I don't remember any of them living in a mansion. The call of God is really to sacrifice. The generous reaping might be in the lives of other people. Do I think God blesses those that follow him in giving? Absolutely. It's not a zero-sum game when it, when it comes to, I give 10, I'm going to get 20. That's not why we give. That's not why we do it. Paul's encouraging this place here, hey, so little and, and little's going to happen in Jerusalem. So generously, and a lot can happen in Jerusalem with, with what's going on in the church. Can't you get excited about that? Cheerfulness and not reluctantly or pressured is another trait of giving. Cheerfulness, not reluctantly, not pressured. Well, Jimmy, how much? Another great question. Thank you for asking. Listen, I am a tither, and I believe in the principle and the purpose of the tithe. Jimmy, what's a tithe? Great question. Tithe is a tenth. It's a literal translation. Tithe is a tenth. Well, I, I, I tithe 5%. No, you don't. You give 5%. If you're going to tithe, it's a tenth. It's the way it is. And I believe in the principle and the purpose of the tenth and, I, and of, of what I earn up front and off the top. And I'm not saying that here to elevate myself at all. Just trying to show you as a leader where I'm at. I believe in stewardship. I believe that 100% of what I have is God's. He simply entrusts me as a manager. Dave Ramsey is really good about delineating the difference between an owner and a manager. The manager is, is the steward. And usually when the word stewardship comes up in a church, it's like, oh, they're getting ready to build a building. Stewardship is the understanding that I am not the owner, I'm the manager. The owner owns, the manager manages. So the owner entrusts the manager, the steward, with the resources to then manage them for the purposes of the owner. It's not the steward's money. It's the owner's money. And when you get that confused, you'll never get giving figured out in your life. We are stewards of the resources that he entrusts us with. The real question is not how much should I give, it's how much should I keep? How much is God allowing me to keep? Because it's his. Well, Jimmy, I believe the Old Testament, or this, the, the tithe is an Old Testament principle. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, then, let's practice the New Testament philosophy where they sold everything they had and gave it all away. Because we could do that. But I don't think that's what God intends from us either. But you do see that in the New Testament where they sold everything they had and gave it all away and lived together in some commune. Listen, the purpose here is not to debate the tithing idea. Because a great portion of the people who claim to be part of of his church, his called out assembly, don't tithe, they don't give generously, or they simply don't give at all. So if you want to parse words, that's okay. I'd rather you just give generously. I'd rather you sit alone with God and figure this out. Allowing God to control your resources and your giving is a mark of the called out assembly, and it makes God happy. God or giving is not God's way of getting money from you. If you think that that's what it's about, we should really just sit down and have a conversation. 
Giving is not God's way of getting money out of you. When we take an offering, giving is not our way to encumber you with something else. God is a giver. We reflect the God we serve by giving. Just as we reflect him as a servant leader, we reflect him as a giver. Jesus is the example. Christ is all that matters, right? Giving is about God having your heart. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We say this, I mean, I've heard this ever since I've been part of church planning and church development, stuff like this, that the pocketbook is the last thing to come for a developing believer. And I believe it. It's the hard one. It's the one that's hard to talk about. I hate that it hit my topic today. But it was here. I got to deal with it. It's part of it. But listen, the giving element in your life is about God having your heart and about God having your worship and about God having all of you. He wants you called out of the world and thinking differently than the world thinks. You'll never outgive God. He wants your heart in the matter. He wants you in the matter. He's got enough resource to handle it. He wants you. And part of a fully devoted developing believer is one that understands giving. Moving on. Next one, evangelists. Evangelists make up the called out assembly. Ryan hit this last week, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As Jesus is leaving, this is what he says is the purpose. That the world would be told about me. This is the first mandate of the church, to spread the gospel, to make sure people hear about Jesus. And I touched on a couple weeks ago this verse in in, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 18 through 21. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The church's job is to reconcile a lost world to a holy God. That is the purpose. We've seen lots of expressions about who the church is and the people that make up the church. An evangelist should be a huge part of the people that make up the church. But as we move from being called out, called together, we are called to share the gospel, the good news. That is the central theme, purpose, and soul of the church. It's not just to be a social organization. It's not just somewhere to come and to make sure we've checked that box. It is a place to come so that we gather and we learn about God so that when we leave this place, we help other people find and follow Jesus. That is the soul of the church. The apostles in the early church were given the task of spreading the message of Christ to all the nations, the ethnos, all the nations. God loves the nations. He loves people and has called the church out of this world to look and act a certain way for the purpose of reconciling people to God. 
If our mission is to tell people about Jesus and how he can change their life, and we look and act and do exactly what the world does, there's no point in coming to Jesus. That's called hypocrisy. We say one thing and we do another. The church is called out to look different, to look like something that is attractive, that people want to be a part of, to be connected with a holy God. And it's our job as believers to make sure we are spreading that word. We do that in all kinds of ways around here. Everything that we do is seasoned with that approach that ultimately we want to see people find and follow Jesus. Do you see it? Do you get it? Do you understand why you're part of the called out assembly? Ultimately, in a word, being the church, we are givers. Jimmy, you just talked about giving. I know. We are givers. When we look at the idea of worship, we give our heart. We give our emotions. We give our thankfulness. We give all that honor and praise. We give it to God. We're givers. We talk about being disciples. We give away our understanding and take on God's understanding. We give him that place in our life. We say, I don't have it figured out. I know I'm supposed, I, I want to know what you have for me. I give you my understanding. As servants, we give him our time and our talent. We give it. What Ryan has you signing up for back there? Sorry, not paid. You're giving. You're giving of yourself. We talk about funders. We give our resources to God to fund the movement, to fund the church, to fund the spread of the gospel. We give. And as evangelists, we give the very message of Christ to a lost and dying world. We are givers. So as we wrap up, quick question. Are you a giver or are you a getter? As a member of this church, as a member of this local called out assembly, are you a giver or are you a getter? I'm not just talking about money here. Are you giving yourself in worship? Are you giving yourself to his discipleship? Are you giving him, yourself to his serving? Are you giving yourself in funding? Are you giving away the message of Jesus? Are you a giver or are you a getter? We don't need more getters. We need givers. We need Givers, God has called it to this. Are you part of this church to sit and soak? I hope not. There's so much more to it. Are you ready to give it all to the one who gave it all to you? We are givers. And as the called out ones, we have an amazing relationship and life and future with our Savior. And as we follow him and obey him, it will be so much sweeter. And many more will have the opportunity to see Jesus too. We understand that we are givers. I challenge you to be the church. Be the called out assembly that he's called us to be.